Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. And with us today, we have former chief speechwriter for President Obama. Not me, but Cody Keenan. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. I don't know about that. Not me, Cody. How'd you feel about it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a weird thing to say. (laughs) Cody, we got you right as you left the White House. I know Axe got you like on your last day. Yeah, but that's like a life On story. The <laughs> it's like I was born, I lived. You know, we're gonna get into it. <laughs> uh, so we were all in the White House together, the three of us, from 2009 to when I left. And oh no, when did you leave? Love it. Like end of 11, like the first term, basically. Okay, so the first couple of years. Yeah, end of the first term, sorta. Three years. I did the first three years. And Cody and I worked together for a long time. Slogged it out. Cody, you want to first tell us how you got the job? with Obama. How you first tell the origin story. Well, you hired me, which was a nice uh, gesture on your part. You're welcome. The origin story was we had a mutual friend, Stephanie Cutter. Yes. Who uh, I worked with in Ted Kennedy's office back in, in the old days. And she first approached me saying, you know, you should consider writing for Barack Obama. And I was like, well, that's a nice pipe dream. How on earth is that going to work out? And she said, well, I know his chief speechwriter from the Kerry campaign days. Mm. So I can't remember exactly how we got put in touch, but I remember you called me one day. I was at Legal Seafoods in Boston. Classes had just ended at, uh, I was in graduate school at Harvard, and we were all sitting outside having a couple beers, and you called. Wait, where? Le- sorry, go on. <laughs> sorry, am I not allowed to mention corporate sponsorship? No, no, no. I meant the Harvard part. Legal oh, yeah. Seafoods is great. Great school, clam chowder. School in Boston. Love Legal Seafoods. Yeah, where are you guys? <laughs> we're going to direct message you guys. This um, isn't free. I was drinking a delicious Leinenkugel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. I, I, which is amazing, because I never return emails <clears throat> or phone calls. <laughs> you Well, I always say when people are like, how'd you get this job? It was a mix of luck and desperation. Luck on my part, desperation on yours. Yeah, I needed help. Yeah. It was just me and Adam Frankel in the speech writing office at the beginning of that campaign in 2007, writing everything. When people ask me how I became a speechwriter at the White House, I say, because I was the most talented. Yeah. Anyway, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I remember I, I tweeted a joke about a missed connection with you the other day. I remember on that phone call, you said, uh, you know, what have you written before? And the truth is, I'd only written like five speeches for Ted Kennedy, and he usually ignored most of them anyway and did his own thing. But there was a speech for the RFK Human Rights Awards in 2005. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I wrote the Senator Kennedy's speech for that, and you wrote Senator Obama's speech for that. And we connected that uh, about that over the phone, that you and I were both standing in the back of the room, both nervous watching our bosses give those speeches. Just a couple of liberal kids with Kennedys as icons looking at... Uh, I can see... Love it's not rolling his eyes yet, but I can feel I can feel that it's there. Dreaming big dreams. <laughs> Dreaming big dreams. No, I, I remember... Just, I'm just thinking where I was, which was just like slogging it out in the Hillary Clinton Senate office, just, just trying to avoid eye contact so I wouldn't be fired. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember needing help really badly and Cutter saying, I have an intern, and I think I was most impressed by the Kennedy background because I'm also from, I'm from Massachusetts and I thought, oh, a writer for Ted Kennedy. Absolutely. Let's do it. So you came on, you were the speechwriting office intern for a little while yeah. and then you left us to go yeah. finish, get your degree or whatever. That was one of the hardest choices I ever made because I was just your intern for the summer of 07. Right. And I remember, you know, 
talking to you being like, what should I do? Should I skip this? Should I stay? And you and Pfeiffer both told me, you're like, here's the deal. We're putting all of our money into the field, as it should be. Right. You know, to, we got to go out and win Iowa and whatnot. And you said, if you stay, you know, you'll be my first hire once we win the primaries. So I thought about it. Ultimately, I decided not to and go back and finish school. And I just happened to get lucky that the primary stretched all the way out till June. <laughs> God damn. And then I remember you called me again. And uh, it was like the day after Hillary conceded. And you were like, let's do this. And I was out there in two days, ready to go. This is a lot of bio stuff. And also, I wasn't there, so I don't really feel a part of this. <laughs> um, let's relive the glory days of the campaign, which, uh, love it, was working for Hillary Clinton at the time and lost. <laughs> No, yeah, and then you. So then you came on, and uh, and we had our little speechwriting team. By that point, Rhodes was had joined the crew. Rhodes Sarah was there. Hurwitz. I sat like five feet from Tommy. I mean, it, it was a great, it was a great time. Love it. You would have really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was probably at the gym by then <laughs> because Hillary had lost, and I was working in the Senate office, and there were no speeches to write. So at least then, I, I, think I, I got fit, <laughs> but I was very sad. <laughs> so then we all got to the White House, and we made one more hire, and that was John Lovett. Oh, hello. Yeah. Because <laughs> we, we had our team. And then I was no longer the junior guy because we had Kyle O'Connor. That's right. Kyle took over his intern on the campaign mm-hmm. in 2008, and then we all got to the White House. And then Lovett was the most, Lovett was the most, the newest guy, actually. Yeah, watch, watch what you say after that most. <laughs> I didn't say most I junior. Don't want, I don't want to hear that junior word next to my name. Um, yeah. Cody so, and I shared an office. That's right. How was, how was sharing an office? <laughs> it was good for the first few hours of the day because Lovett wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> He'd usually come in on his electric scooter around 1130. <laughs> in a t-shirt and this, shorts. This is not a joke. Finally, He'd finally put a suit on whenever he had to go to the bathroom. Right. Well, basically, I'd, come, right, I'd, I'd wear the t-shirt and shorts. I'd bike in, but during the summer months, I'd switch the electric scooter so I wouldn't sweat through all my clothes. And then I'd stay in the t-shirt and shorts and work until I had to leave the office again, at which point I'd put on my suit. And I'd have to alert people, like, don't come out. I'm putting on my suit. <laughs> I ran a tight ship, people. Um... <laughs> So here's a question because I've thought about this too. Do you remember which speech finally made you stop feeling like I'm just a fraud? How did I get this job? I don't know if any did. <laughs> Come on, oh, I don't know? believe that. No, it, you you eventually get more comfortable with it. But I think you know I don't know if it's the thing about writers, but I think I will always feel like a fraud, not worthy of writing for him. Yeah. Um, but I ultimately got more comfortable with it. I mean. Not to blow smoke, but you were an incredible mentor who taught me how to do this. That's, he, why, that's why we invited you on this program today. Yeah, so I could blow smoke. <laughs> Is, when, was there like a, a mentorship program you applied for? I didn't get any of that. <laughs> <laughs> the um, results are clear. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to think about it. What was it. the first big speech you remember writing for Obama? Tucson. Tucson, right. Yeah. That was the first big one. And that normally you would have done that, but you were working on the State of the Union address, which was only about two weeks away. And then you had to rewrite the opening of the State of the Union address. Because, you know, Congresswoman Giffords was shot in that attack. And I should say, this is the thing about speech writing, and we all know this, is the anxiety and the workload of speech writing is directly related to how many people you have doing the job. I know that sounds simple, but like the worst time of my professional career was when it was just Adam and I on the campaign and no one else was helping us. And I remember when that happened in Tucson and um, I was sitting there working on the State of the Union and now he has to go deliver, uh, go to a speech at a memorial service immediately, but also we have to finish the State of the Union. I did not have a lot of stress then because I was like, well, if Cody's going to handle it, Cody can handle it. And I don't have to worry about that. You know, it's like just, it's a yeah, just it's, having the team and having people with different skills on the team, like a correspondence center comes up and that could take a whole year and I'll, and I love it's going to handle it. So that's fine. We're good. The um, It's a strange thing just in general, right? Because speech writing is this artistic, long-form 
time-consuming, week or multi-week process grafted on top of politics, which is very technocratic and very much rooted in 30-minute meetings all day. And so it's like, you know, people always say like, you know, oh, you know, you know, you work at, uh, in the White House. Uh, what's the day like? And actually for a speechwriter, every day is kind of different. Like if you're a communications person in the White House, if you're a policy person in the White House, you get in at 730, you do your morning call, you do these responses, you respond to these emails, you figure out what's the next day's about, you write the memo. But for speeches, it's this cycle of work and the and it's this strange thing. And so it does really depend on having people around who can like kind of slot in right to each of these different big speeches coming down the pike. Yeah. And so talk about the process for Tucson a little bit, since that was such a... I, I think, first of all, I went into your office and said, what the hell am I going to do here? Right. And then, you know, I went up and talked to him and Pluff uh, about what we were going to say. And another thing about uh, two things. The first is that we should say off the top that, you know, Barack Obama was actively involved in every single speech, often rewrote big sections of them. It's not like we just. It's not just a disclaimer that we had to sign some agreement to say. Like right. it's, 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 yeah. it's real. It's a very real thing. And yeah. I think people have seen enough of Pete Suze's photos to know that's true. Yeah. But what also goes into his speech is what's actually happening around it, you know, in the real world. And pretty quickly after, you know, even during the events of Tucson, you saw people start pointing fingers and getting angry and blaming one another. And that's kind of what became the context for that speech. I remember that. I remember and I remember in that meeting, too, he said, I want to speak like I'm going to, you know, like, like a friend passed away or a family member passed away and I'm going to the memorial service and giving a eulogy sort of about that person that I knew. And so I want it very human and personal and I don't want it too political at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, and with every eulogy we've done, and we've had to do far too many, you know, the first part will always be paying tribute to the victims, telling their stories. And then the second part will usually be, what is our responsibility now that they're gone? And that changed over time. You know, Tucson, he didn't get political. Newtown, he did. Right. Because you had to at that point. Dallas, Charleston, all had political components to them because we have responsibilities to prevent that from happening again, to live up to you know, the people that we lost, you know, Tucson, the end of it was, I want this democracy to live up to this little girl's expectations. This little girl, Christina Taylor Green, who died in the shooting, who had just become active, who went to see her congresswoman, which is a patriotic thing to do, who ran for student council and was gunned down in a supermarket. Yeah. You know, it's such a strange thing that it's the hallmark of this administration that time and time again, he went and did these these memorial services for a bunch of dead people who were killed in a mass shooting over and over and over and over again. And you don't think about that going in. I remember when we went to the White House, we were all excited. We were like, we get to write about moonshots and State of the Union addresses and commencements and big things. And yeah. you, you never think that every couple of months you're going to have to give a eulogy for something or other. Yeah, that was, it just never ended either. So I left the White House in March of 2013. I think about a year before that, you moved into... We started sharing an office together. That was my favorite year. It was of the White House. Period. It was a fun year, and we and that partly my feelings, it was that my feelings are hurt now. <laughs> Love it was gone. <laughs> I left. Things really brightened up, and and partly it was. I mean, you were deputy director of speech writing at the time, but sort of wanted to make sure that when I left, you know, you'd be ready. What was the transition like for you on your side in becoming chief speechwriter? for the president? Like, what did you go through there? It was, well, I went through spasms of panic and fear. <laughs> um, but what helped was spending all that time with you for a year, watching your interactions with him, getting to spend more time with him. You know, I remember you came back from a trip with him. I think you guys were out here in LA for fundraiser or whatnot. And the way you told me was, you know, you went in to talk to him on Air Force One and said, look, I'm thinking about leaving in the next year or so. I remember what happened is we had just been out to LA and we saw Love It. 
And he was like, how's Lovett doing? And I told him about the cult classic 1600 pen. And uh, and I got all excited. He's like, that sounds like some, you you sound really excited about that. Like you might want to go to LA and do that. I'm like, I do, I do. He's like, like you know, a couple of years from now after the administration's over. And I was like, yeah, maybe a little sooner than that. <laughs> He's like, what? You're what? You want to leave? And yeah. And then I told him not to fear. Yeah, I remember the way you told it. Uh, he said, well, "What are you thinking about a replacement?" And you said, "I think Cody." And he said, "I think that's right." He did, and he wanted to get to know you even more. I mean, I think one thing about speechwriting that everyone should know is, I do not think you can be a speechwriter for someone successfully without talking to that person. And I I think this is true of politics and government. You know, I've said this to a million different companies and organizations that we've written speeches for. Like, there's a lot of times where communications people are like, okay, you can just go through me and I'll tell you what the principal wants to say and then you can write it. And I'm always like, it is impossible to write for someone unless you know that person. And you see this over and over again. There's this vicious circle for speechwriters who don't have a good relationship with the principal they're writing for, which is... They try their hardest to be innovative and try to be creative and write a great speech, but they don't know the voice of the person they're writing for. It goes up the chain. It gets rejected. The, the, the principal is getting, losing confidence in the person they've hired. And so then that person starts kind of sanding down the corners, trying to be safe. And then the speeches get more and more boring. And the, the senator or the congressman or who have, whatever gets more and more tired of this person. And this person who could have been a great speechwriter never had a chance to do a good job. And, you know, you see this in a lot of campaigns and you've seen a lot of say failed presidential campaigns yep and so i always made sure everyone on our team got to spend time with the president in the oval if you had a speech that was out of town you got to travel with him you know it's the only way it works yeah and i remember telling samantha power she came in and asked for advice on hiring a speechwriter when she became a un ambassador because like our boss she's an extraordinary writer in her own right won a pulitzer then i told her you know whoever you hire you have to spend time with that person take him with you take her with you you know and ended up being a friend of mine nick steinberg who's a brilliant writer for her and I said, you have to spend time with this guy like every single day, every it's single day. It's funny. It's it's the it's easily the most important piece of advice about a speechwriter. Like it doesn't, you know, you don't need to be the world's best writer. You don't need to have the best political judgment. You don't need to be the hardest worker. <laughs> <laughs> um, Personal plug. Uh, uh, but you have to do all those things, and you have to have access to the person you're writing for because it's about that relationship and your ability to, to harness their voice. That's the thing. People always ask, how long did it take you to get his voice? Mm. And it took a few years. And I would say my first couple of years, especially on the campaign, were more mimicry than anything else because I hadn't met him yet because everything was going through you getting edited. And it's really kind of mimicry until you actually meet that person, work with that person, get inside their head. And we didn't spend a lot of time with him during the campaign because he was traveling all the time. I never and met him on the campaign. We were all in, I, I went on the road once in a while, but we were ma- mainly based in Chicago. So it was actually a lot better during the White House because mm-hmm. we had we ended up like with a weekly meeting with him yeah. uh, to talk about the speeches for the week. We got to meet with Axrod every day because you could sort of gain through osmosis by through Axrod about Hello, what the Lord president Smiths. Hello, yeah, we would we would go all of us would go see Axrod every day every speech writer and we'd sit in his office and he'd walk in usually like rumpled and late from something yeah, and just say like, hello have a, donut, have a donut in his pocket <laughs> yeah and on his shirt <laughs> and he would say hello wordsmiths and that's how we'd start the speech writing meeting yep. uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. and there's, there's also just the um the edits like you know you try as hard as you can to get a person's voice and then like you know you'd, you'd write the speech and you think you captured it and then like you know president obama would like write a like cross something out and then write a paragraph beneath it and it's like oh that's how he sounds <laughs> <laughs> missed it um cody what was the hardest speech you've ever written not like emotionally difficult like a but i've been staying up for weeks and i can't figure this out and State of the Union addresses are always like that, but only because you're trying to cram so much stuff into it, and, and getting the structure right is the hardest part. Once you get that right, the rest is easy. I, I still don't want to call those the hardest. They're probably the most time-consuming and annoying. Yeah. Um, 
Charleston might have been the hardest. Oh yeah, because you know we can we can do our best, but and I'm sure you went through this with the race speech in 08. It's we haven't lived the experience of a black man, right? You know? So that's a difficult thing to try to empathize, and no matter how many people you talk to, he will eventually have to take control of that speech, the president, and take it to a place where we can't reach. Also, could you imagine one of us thinking like? Oh, yeah. The real meat of this speech should be uh, the concept of unearned grace. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, in my in my theological background. <laughs> where did that come from? Because, I mean, this is obviously the speech where the president decided to sing Amazing Grace at the end of the speech. One of, I think, the best moments mm-hmm. in his eight years in the White House. Um, how did that start? This was, again, a speech where, you know, circumstances outside the White House kind of dictated the way it would go. We were sitting in the Oval on Monday, I think, of that week, that incredible, crazy week where the Confederate flag came down, Obamacare was upheld, marriage equality was upheld, and the Charleston speech happened. And we were trying to figure out what to say. And I confess, I was kind of mentally and emotionally exhausted from all the times we'd had to go give speeches after mass shootings. And I was like, I got nothing left. I think he was too. I remember I saw him at a fundraiser earlier that week in LA, right after the shooting had happened. And I remember hearing him speak and I was like, man, he sounds down. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the I saw him. I've seen him angry twice ever. The first was the day he was told that healthcare.gov was a catastrophic failure, Mm. which, by the way, works great now. Check it out. Yeah. And the second was the day that the Senate failed on background checks. Right. And I remember in his anger right afterwards, he's like, you know, what do I say the next time this happens in a eulogy when our Congress has made it clear they're not going to do anything about this? So that was kind of the context for a discussion around Charleston. But then something incredible happened, which was the families of the victims all forgave the killer in court. None of us saw it coming. And he was like, that's it. That's grace. That's what I want to talk about. And, you know, so I agonized for a few days over draft, gave it to him. And in the span of five hours, he'd crossed out the last three pages and handwritten them himself all about this concept of unearned grace. It's a free and benevolent gift of God. And I was like, well... Okay. Thanks, Obama. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm-hmm. More time for you. I uh, 
you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because uh, it turns out talking that's about... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Podsafe America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, Right. Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique, and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Don Lux. Don Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. I always thought the best part of our job was waking up in the morning going into the White House and hearing that he has a lot of edits. Yeah, it was the which, best. Which you wouldn't think, you'd think like a speechwriter would be like, oh no, he rewrote all my shit and now he doesn't like it. But when it's he had great. real edits, you'd you'd get these yellow pages back and you'd read them and you'd just be like, ah, yes. Right, yes. Like the, that they, was it. I you, missed it. That makes, it. It makes right. sense now and it's better. Yeah. You don't want, if it came back with nothing, it could mean anything. Right. Well, sometimes it, came, it did come back, and it was like, I want to see you and talk and about that, it. That's the worst. <laughs> yes. Right, but, but, but if it comes back with nothing, it can mean he didn't engage with it or thought it was fine. But if it comes back with a bunch of edits, a bunch of line notes and things, that means it's he, you gave him what he needed to do his job. Yeah. And that was true of the Correspondence Center speeches, too. Yeah. Should we yeah. talk about how the first Correspondence Dinner that we ever did, Cody, you ended up as a pirate? <laughs> I think you guys forced me to do that. <laughs> we did yeah, too. Um, well, so, so Poor Cody, like he becomes the chief speechwriter for the president of the United States, and when you Google your name, the picture that still comes up is you, you dressed as, as a pirate, pirate. Yeah. next to the president. How was, did that, let's talk about how that came to be. But it was that was in that those there was that was the first correspondence center, right? And it was this insane period where he's dealing with the financial crisis. He's dealing with all these different things. That was that was like the era of okay, we're giving a speech on science, but there's a topper on pirates, the bird flu, and the Volcker rule. So. That was the year of that was like you know Captain was it Captain Phillips. Phillips Captain Phillips I'm the captain I'm the captain now but uh, that was it was when it was a real event and we dressed you up like a Captain Hook pirate yeah because we said the joke was like the president has also promised to meet with leaders he doesn't necessarily agree with Including, which is a promise he made during the campaign well and there was like a Washington kerfluffle because I think Hugo Chavez like gave him a book at the That's Summit of the right, Americas or right. something someone handed him a book and Washington and he was like what am I supposed to do throw it in his face or something yeah, yeah like, they were mad he took the book can you God the things that used to be fucking scandals <laughs> before Trump was president holy shit. 
shit. <laughs> yeah. Like Obama, he took like, a book. Like, oh, he took a selfie at Nelson Mandela's funeral. <laughs> right. It's like a morning Joe topic for two weeks, you know? Unbelievable. <laughs> so the, the, uh. the joke was that he had said during the campaign that he would meet with foreign leaders without precondition. And right. he was like, look, here's a photo of me. You know, taking a book from Hugo Chavez. Here's a photo of me meeting with the leader of the pirate rebellion, and that was me. And you were just dressed as such an old school pirate. Did we get a parrot on your shoulder? I can't remember if we got. I tried. I still got it. You have the parrot? Oh yeah, that's awesome. It's an, it's a, I it's, drove around from costume shop to costume shop to get that done for yeah. you, and you handed him Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about. I think one of my all-time favorite speeches that Barack Obama has ever delivered, and I can say this since I had zero part in writing it, the Selma speech, the speech he gave at the anniversary of Selma. It's a my favorite. Ago. It's my favorite. I don't know that we've ever talked about sort of how how that came to be, what his thinking was. From from the outside, what I remember is he was scheduled to speak there for like a month or so. It was coming up. And and then a couple of weeks before the speech, that's when Rudy Giuliani, still still causing trouble today, said, um, you know, I don't think Barack Obama loves his country, or loves mm-hmm. his country, something mm-hmm. like that. It, it was, <clears throat> he started out by saying, I know this is a horrible thing to say. Which is your first clue that you should just stop yeah, talking. Yeah, that, that's not good. Also, I'm not a racist, but is also a bad sign about what's about to come out of someone's <laughs> mouth. But it was along the lines of, he wasn't raised like we were. I don't think he loves the country like we do. And it's the same kind of dog whistle bullshit we put up with for eight years, you know, like Barack yeah. Obama's some creepy other, you know? Yeah. But I figured when he said that, I was like, boom, this whole speech now, not a direct response to Giuliani, but an indirect response to that kind of thinking. Yes. So, you know, no matter what, you can write a beautiful speech just commemorating what happened at Selma. Easy thing to do. Yeah. Just say, you know, God bless America and go home. We went into the Oval and I was like, hey, you know, you heard about this, right? He goes, yeah. And I was like, well, let's, you know, talk about that. Let's address it indirectly. And he he started the wheel started turning. He was like. Yeah, let's talk about the idea of America, what it means to love this country, what it means to be a patriot, who defines what an American is. And, you know, gave us all sorts of incredible ideas for this speech that were true to his vision of America going back to the 04 speech in Boston. Yes. You know, which is that people who love their country can change it. You know, this this is a country founded on the idea that we are imperfect. You know, it even says to form a more perfect union. And we have the tools with a system of self-government to do that. And people have done it at great risk to themselves throughout history. Let's tell that story and plant Selma firmly in it. It's also, it happened before Trump, but I think it's maybe the best response to Trumpism from the president that I've ever heard. And everyone should go read it because it's still, I think it is the best distillation of Obama's view of patriotism mm-hmm. and American history. What makes America exceptional? Yes. It's just it's patriotism for adults is what it is. Well, but I I've always thought that the 2004 convention speech was notable because what he tried to do was redefine the concept of patriotism as not just flag-waving mindless sort of we're the best right or as, as he said in, in selma not stock photos or airbrush history or right? feeble attempts to paint some of us as more american than others okay guys guys people are listening to this okay? <laughs> i can't have that i can't have us quoting the speeches at each other look just because you don't remember a great quote from an obama speech well that's some of the great <laughs> that's some of the great stuff he can do like i remember tons of stuff <laughs> i'm here to lighten it up cody that's that's some of the great stuff that brock obama does with his edits though like i thought i had written a good draft it was true to what he wanted to do and then when you start getting edits Back. And we got lucky that week because we had a snow day too. So the government shut down. I think it was either the day before the speech or two days before. So all of his meetings were pulled down and we could just hand drafts back and forth all day. And he'll come back with a couple different kind of edits. You know, one that just ties together everything you're trying to say in a way that you couldn't reach. 
and then others that just make things just make your language better. You know, the right. first example was he added in the line about, you know, not stock photos or airbrush history or feeble attempts to paint some of us as more weird than others. That is just a shiv, you know, rhetorical shiv right there. Yeah. There are other ones where I probably had some pedestrian line like, you know, they endured beatings and he turned it into you know, the billy club and the chastening rod, the tear gas and the trampling hoof, the gush of blood and splintered bone. And I was he's, like, okay. He's an author. He's just, sometimes he just proves that he can dunk on you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he enjoys doing that. Yeah. I know. There's probably a lot of, love, love it's taking the place of a lot of people who are going to be like, oh God, these Obama people and the Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. I have, it's I have so a role gross. to play. I drank the Kool-Aid. I just, yeah, you, you I drank took it, it later. Down. I drank it later than everybody else. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I, the Kool-Aid for me is like kind of hit slowly over many years. Man. What did when, you love about Barack Obama? What did I love about him? No, I was going to say, it's a silly question, but it's also like about his speeches and his style and like what, what made you think this guy has it. I remember in the 2008 primary, I always found him really compelling. And I'll, I'll be honest, like, I really liked him. And I'm not just saying that in hindsight. Like, I did really... Like him, my what even would from make, the Hillary side of things. From what would make what would well, I'll t- well, the last sort of hook I had to hang my hat on was let's not pretend it's not a risk. Like, so the way I was thinking about it in two thousand eight is that we just couldn't elect John McCain. You know, we had these eight years of, of Bush. The country was in shambles. Like we needed to ch- elect someone, and I uh, fool me once, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I I genuinely had adopted the the position that look, I know Hillary Clinton can beat John McCain. I believe Barack Obama can beat John McCain, but I'm just not sure. Right. And so that was enough to scare me. And also, and I also think that a lot of the attacks on Hillary have been unfair over the years. But I remember, I think it maybe was around the race speech, or it was just, maybe it was even around the Iowa JJ. I'd see him give these speeches, and I remember I'd turn to somebody and be like, hey, do you remember who lost to Kennedy? Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that Barack Obama ran on this platform of optimism and change but ultimately, that's not what was called for from him in the first two years of his presidency, which I think are the two years that in many ways will define his his legacy. What was called from him is maturity, responsibility, being circumspect, being an adult, treating people like adults, making hard decisions. You know, it turned out that that, you know, he ran on this platform of change and he did bring a great deal of change. But the qualities that were actually background, you know. And actually probably really just undergirded what made it possible for him to win, even if they weren't the part of his platform. His humility, his decency as a human being are ultimately what I think made him an extraordinary president. And and I am not like, you know, there are people I think who talk about politics and they're like, I'm just looking for someone who inspires me. And it's like, well, no, I understand saying that inspiration is a tool. But if you're saying you need to be inspired, you need to grow up because that's not what politics is about. Politics isn't a TV show. It's about actual problems in people's lives. Like, I am glad Barack Obama is inspirational, but I don't need it. I need a politician who can do things. And so to me, like, that's always been my tension with with the people that are like, you know, why isn't Hillary inspiring? Well, is that for you or is it because you believe it's useful to win elections? Well, I think part of what Obama's inspiration, though, is it is a challenge to get your ass in gear and go do something. Right. I mean, it was always... Look, the we versus the I of Trump, I think, is one of the biggest contrasts there, right? Yep. And it sort of got lost because it was like, <clears throat> Barack Obama, he's a celebrity, he's walking on water, all this kind of stuff. But every single speech, it was always like, don't believe in my ability to bring about change, believe in yours. Which, which can very easily sound cheesy and trite and cliche, but there is something underlying that that's real, which is yeah. what the responsibilities are of citizens in a democracy. And just one more, one more thing also that I had to learn over time, which is... 
I don't know. I'm a cynic about certain things, and, and I believe anybody who wants to be president is insane. <laughs> and that usually that these are people with a hole in their hearts that, that no power or privilege or attention could fill. That's been true of many of our presidents. They have a chip on their shoulder. They have something in their history that makes them search for this thing to make them feel better, to make them forget their fear of death, what have you. And I remember feeling like, I don't understand. Like, is Barack Obama a cipher? Where is this flaw? Like, where is this flaw? And I do believe, you know, you see that that over the course of administration, you see the consequences of aloofness, of arrogance, what have you. But his fundamental flaw is simply believing he was the right person to do this job. But I do believe in over eight years, that was true. So yeah. um, in the end, I think my fear was actually that that he wasn't as good of, good of a person as people said he was. But I, I really, you know, look, we sat down with him for that last interview, which, Cody, you helped make possible. And I was just over, you know, you talked about it. He, he never got cynical. But he was just unshakably decent as well. Yeah. He really is a decent man. Well, and that takes discipline, I think, too, because yeah. it's pretty easy to pop off, as you see from all of us. I get asked a lot, you know, why did you leave? And I usually say, because I was really fucking tired. Um, why did you stay? <sighs> you stayed for a long time. You yeah, shut the lights like off, 2, man. 2,922 days. I, well, that's, it's funny you say that, because I remember, you know, grabbing you fabs for a drink back in 08 and we were still in chicago we were mm. in tavern on um on uh, on the park and i asked you if i was going to come to the white house and you were like yeah and I, I told you that night that if you took me to the white house i would turn the lights off yeah and i meant it that's not the full reason i stayed it's because i i couldn't imagine leaving you know and you'd put in enough time you'd been there since 2005 mm. i mean that's a lifetime especially going through that first campaign yeah i grew my 20s and, you know, there were... That's why we're kind of reliving them now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> 2013 and 2014 were brutal. Just slogs. I, mean. I we So, helping out the Obama Foundation, which, you know, we've been doing for a little bit for last year, and they were asking to, like, help put together sort of a narrative of everything that happened from, like, birth through the end of the administration. And I remember, and Tommy and I were going through it all, and when we got to 2013 and 2014, we tried to pick out, like, oh the events God. from that year, and I just looked back, I was like... Those were bad years. <laughs> All the events were bad things. <laughs> it was just... It was awful, man. ISIL, Ebola, Ferguson. God, what am I forgetting? Well, just also uh, just an obstinate downs. and despicable Congress. Healthcare.gov. Yeah. Ted Cruz doing who, his thing. Who weren't, and who weren't willing to lift a finger to help ever. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes of Barack Obama's presidency, getting back to this whole we thing, is that... This was a guy who, and it's not like he came up with the idea that, you know, we have to do things together in democracy. It's a thread that runs throughout our history. It was the whole point of the Selma speech. But once he got there, a lot of America just placed their faith in him to get it done. You know, go force these things through as long as you have 60 votes in the first couple of years. And then you have an intransigent opposition. And the wonderful kind of backlash to that is what we're seeing now. You know, the past 10 days have... have not made me more optimistic because I still was, but watching people do all these protests and now yeah. taking on this democracy because you have to take carry on without Barack Obama, you know, do this without him. This was this is like the Selma speech come to life. Pod Save America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. alone? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. 
And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. They're available 24-7. You can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape design, and how best to take care of your plants. Landscaping, you know, it's, it's, they may, you know, you get, it's, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. And honestly, like, it's, it can be harder than you think to keep these plants alive. We've yeah. killed off a couple of them in our For day. sure. But, you know, with, with Fast Growing Trees, you got this uh, support line 24-7. You call and you say, hey, how do I keep my lemon tree going? And they say, water it more or yeah. something. Anyway, yeah, very excited right. about Fast Growing Trees. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And Pod Save America listeners can get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's true, but it's also, you know... There's a lot of people that supported and were enthusiastic about Barack Obama who disappeared. They just disappeared, and we did not. We didn't get them out in the midterms. Oh, 2016. No, 20, I mean 2014. I mean 20, 2010. That didn't turn out to take the House back, take the Senate back. I mean, the obstinance of Mitch McConnell, it worked. I mean, mm-hmm. it did work. Yeah. What was it like in the White House when Trump won? Because, I mean, we, we asked POTUS, uh, F. POTUS this, uh, this question during the interview, which was, like, what was sort of the principle behind the restraint you've shown during the transition? And he'll and, always be POTUS to us. And he, yeah, right, that's true. And he never broke, right? Like, even in, I can say even in private, he's never said, like, oh, fuck, I can't believe it. You know, like, he's just, he, there is something bigger than just sort of the public persona there and why he's acted like this. But talk about, like, the day after when you guys all went back into the White House. I, it sucked. Uh, <laughs> Rhodes and Pfeiffer yes. were actually in my apartment watching returns that night, and POTUS called, I think, around 2 in the morning saying, you know, we got to write something a little different than we were expecting. And the short-term thing of it, you know, a lot of people were asking me, too, why is he being so deferential here? Why is he insistent on a peaceful transfer of power for someone that wants to tear up everything you've done? And my response has always been, you know, in a, in a year or two where almost every democratic norm has been shredded. The one that the president has sole responsibility to maintain is the peaceful transfer of power. And he's going to do it because he reveres the office. He believes in this democracy. Like, it sounds quaint and naive, but he actually really does. And he remembered how George W. Bush did all that for him in the beginning, too. But it it was brutal. And it's there are a lot of, you know, I've lost campaigns before, so I knew it was like. But there are a lot of young people still working in the White House for whom this was their first job. Mm. So they've never lost anything. And there are people in tears and you had to tell them, like, look. I still believe this is going to be an aberration in our history. You know, it's, there's Same. going to be a lot of damage over the next few years, and it's going to be pretty brutal on a lot of people. But this, people will look back on this. They will read Selma, for example, as one of the first speeches about the future and be like, what were you guys thinking for four years? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think of it like 
there's an America that's dying and it's it's going out with like a supernova. You know, some stars some stars just die and fade away, but others explode brightly before they disappear. And I think Trump is a supernova of a kind of politics we're saying goodbye to. The future's still on our side. Let's make it so. One last thing. President always, uh, this has been reported a couple places, President o has referred to you as Hemingway. Mm. Um, we think that's just like, that didn't really come from Ernest Hemingway. No. <laughs> there, there is nothing Hemingway-esque about political speeches. You know? So how did that come about? That Give us the real story here on Pod Save America. This is the, this is the first time this has ever been told. Nice. <clears throat> Breaking has, news. It has nothing to do with writing or beards. It was... <gasps> I thought it was the beard. It was not the beard. I think the beard probably helped. But it was 2014. We were on a European trip. We were flying back from Poland to Paris, and then we were going to go up to Normandy for the 70th anniversary of D-Day. Mm -hmm. So I'd written the D-Day speech. I was really excited about it. You know, I worked my grandfather's unit into it, even though he didn't fight in D-Day, but in other beach landings, and gave it to the president on the plane, hoping he would look at it so that you know, if he liked it, I could get a little work done, and maybe we could go have dinner in Paris or something. So he comes back on the flight and goes, this is great. I have no edits. I'm really happy with this. And we're like, excellent. So finalized the speech. About 12 of us went out for dinner together, like all staff, just having fun. Because, you know, it's one of the great things about foreign trips is you're working constantly. But you also get to spend an hour or two at night seeing a new city. Mm. So that hour turned into Ben Rhodes and Terry Zuplat and Ben Holzer and I just decided to spend the night going out in Paris. And then we decided to watch the sunrise over Notre Dame and walk back to the hotel just as everybody was loading the motorcade. And so somebody dimed us out to the president as we were getting on the plane in the morning. He comes up. He's like, whoa, movable feast is back. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> they were a lost generation. Yeah. I'm leaving out parts of the story. No, I think that's I think that's probably wise. Yeah. Um, Cody, thank you for doing this with us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And uh, thank you both also for making the speechwriting team as immensely talented as it was thanks you, for you hiring two, me you two are yeah. a huge part of that it, uh, and... it redounded to my benefit <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to watch how trump's speech writing operation fills out so, i mean stephen miller's already off to a great start if you thought <laughs> omb's edits the state of the union address were bad wait to see vladimir putin <laughs> <laughs> oh and with that we will see you later guys thanks, thanks cody thank you bye Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.